0: Welcome to episode 48 of the officially unofficial Def Leppard podcast, Def Leppard. In this episode, we will be picking up the conversation from episode 47, where we talked about side one of Def Leppard's second album, High and Dry, and we will be talking in this episode, we being me, Ben Moore and Andy Gibbons, about the second side of High and Dry. So let's go. Let's go to side two. All right, the first song is You've Got Me Running, written by Joe Elliott, Pete Willis and Steve Clark. Joe said that this was the pop precursor to Photograph. Andy, can you see that in this
1: song? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, some people would say that uh, the first couple of tracks of, of side two are a bit of a dip in quality, but I really rate the first two songs off here. And I think when he says that about photograph if you listen to the chorus this this is probably the first example of them doing a proper chorus with the proper harmonies that you would associate later on with photograph or 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 have you ever or something like that where it is just the band singing And although I do know at the time that they said they couldn't pull it off because they weren't as good vocally alive then, I think, yeah, it's it's definitely a precursor to where they were going in terms of that sort of vocal arrangement. So, yeah, and I think this one could have been a single. It's it's that commercial.
2: You a fan of this song, Ben? I've kind of gone back and forth to what I feel about this song. Um, but now, I, yeah, I really love it. I, I do like it's more commercial appeal, I mean, Steve, in the, um, the High and Dry Pyromania book, he, he's quoted saying that it's, um, yeah, it's a bit more of a pop song. They just want to have a bit of fun. He talks about being influenced by the police for that kind of intro, to the cattle bam, 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 kind of sound. Yeah! <laughs> yeah I think it's cool. And like Andy's saying, it, it's certainly a nod to that idea of having those harmonies in the chorus Um, I do think there's a couple of not odd chord choices in the chorus but ones that just slightly go outside the key so to speak which which makes the harmony sound a little bit odd to me but I think it's a, yeah it's a great pop song cool little riff um, and just it's a bit more kind of simple and fun something that I've associated with the band more so in the recent years like a type of song Joe might come up with on his own. You know, that mm. bit more simplistic, not as many riffs, more kind of power cordy and chordy type of thing. But I think it's cool. I like it. A man of my age, like many, many of his age,
0: my age, what I've done over the last couple of years is, so I always used to buy records and I stopped buying records and the pandemic happened. So what am I going to do other than just buy a record player and start buying records and turn into that type of person, right? Now it's 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 important to say that when you hear Uh, Men in the 40s talk about records. They they talk an awful lot of shit, right? In terms of sound and everything. But one of the things genuinely that changed my view on High and Dry was I bought it on record. And this was like from when it was out at the time. It says it was printed in the Netherlands. I don't think it's a mad one. I just think most of them, most of them were. Right. I got loads of records that sound worse than CDs and everything. But I shit you not. When I put this on, the album sounds completely different and just so much better and so much, I think it was you earlier, Andy said, punchier than any other version I've ever had. And the song where that is the most prevalent is in You Got Me Running. I've got nothing else to say to that. I can't, I can't prove it in any way. <laughs> but the one time where I thought, I've i listened to something on record, I've gone, that genuinely, I'm getting something else that I've not heard before on a CD is that album and that song. And that's why I the last couple of years I've got into it way, way more. So what I'm saying is everyone, come out and buy a record player that you don't need and start buying records and shit. Okay, cool. Right, next song, Lady Strange. Right, earlier on, I said that I used to think High and Dry was a little bit samey. This song always stood out to me as Sound and... Quite different to the rest of the album, um, I thought. And obviously, it's been around since 1980. They were actually playing it on the um, On Through the Night tour. Ben, Lady
2: Strange, what do you think of it? I love it. I think this is my favorite song from the album. always loved it, I don't know why. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's something about it, it's got it's got so many different elements in it, like different riffs, I love the kind of harmony in the chorus, the solo from Steve is just class. One thing about this in comparison You Got Me Running, they're both pretty much in the same key. Uh, where You Got Me Running kind of goes outside in the chorus, Lady Strange stays in the same key and doesn't do anything kind of outrageous. However, it's got so many different sections using the same chords, but so many different riffs that just kind of stand out. And I just think that's, it's just like a riff machine of a song. And uh, they talk about having that kind of mid midsection with the gallop as being, oh, that kind of breaks up the song nicely. Yeah, it's another example of just, just great arranging. And um, I'm glad they don't play live more often. I think on YouTube, we only have that video of them playing it. What, in France? Again, it's probably from yourself, Andy, but I wish I wish they, they kind of bring it out again.
0: No, when you refer to the gallop, is that, it's just the heavy bit where it goes... Exactly, yeah. yeah I love that bit. It's yeah. so good. Andy, Lady Strange, what do you reckon?
1: Yeah, I echo what Ben says. I think it's, uh, it's one of the strong songs on the album. And I think it's also a little, if you listen to the Oxford version on the live uh, album and then listen to this, you can hear a little bit where Muck maybe has simplified it because Rick's drum fills are gone. So it gives the vocals oh, a little bit more room in the guitars. Um, and other than that, they haven't really changed it too much. I mean, that Gallop, that's just typical sort of new wave of uh, British heavy metal kind of trip that is that Maiden made a living out of and it, it fits perfectly. It's great. And again, another song where they've added a, a third verse straight after the solo. And I think this could have been a single as well.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of the, the hookiest songs out of it, And interestingly as well, this is, I think it's the only song on the album where Rick Allen has got a writing credit in it as well. Maybe, maybe they had to, to put his name in it to appease him for taking all of those fills out that he was playing in um, 1980. It was like, come on, we'll, we'll put you in there if you stop playing um, all of those fills. And yeah, and I see this on social media all the time lady strange is definitely one of those songs that died in the world deaf leopard fans you know often refer to as being like you know one of the favorites and underrated song and it's, it's 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 great on to track number eight is on through the night over five minutes long on through the night written by joe elliott written by steve clark written by rick sav savage <laughs>
2: where the album starts to dip for me um i think maybe just in in terms of its track listing on it it's a song where i think it harkens for me back to suitably what they would do on the on through the night album in terms of its sections in terms of how the vocals are it doesn't quite resonate with me as much um i just think it could have done with a bit more quality control but it it's still got some cool ideas in there musically. Again, it's got a cool bridge section, which is something I remember Johnny talking about this. It, it's something similar to what's on White Lightning and Paper Sun, the kind of clean bridge section. But for me, it's a bit it is a bit of a nothing track. I mean, even Steve in the Pyromania High and Dry songbook, he talks about it being well, he doesn't even remember the song, to be honest with you. And he says apparently there's a TV program in Switzerland that uses it for its theme song. So that's, that's a cool, cool little factoid there. What's, what's quite cool is that there's some kind of chord shapes in there which we see a lot more of in Pyromania. They just maybe weren't as utilised as well in this era. Maybe they didn't quite have the arrangements of so the recording techniques down that it just doesn't quite hit the mark. But, you know, albums have to have these types of album tracks which make the other songs sound, sound good. So that's, that's where it kind of lies with me. Nothing, nothing too special it's like the foil isn't it any
0: ideas why they put a song on high and dry that has the same title
2: of their previous album do we know of any rationale behind that joe touches upon it a couple of times in interviews where apparently that was a thing that everyone well not everyone that some people used to do um so oh, it was a thing you'll oh, have a have a track on your album that's that's the name of the album previous. And apparently Mott Lang said that, oh, did you have a song called On To The Night? Because it's quite a good title. You should maybe use it. I think that's where that comes from. Also, one thing I forgot to mention, my CD used to skip in the middle of the solo. For, for the longest time, I never knew how it ended. But yeah, maybe that's why I I don't resonate as much with it as well.
0: It's, I'm the same with um, Billy's Got A Gun. I, um, I had it live on the back of Love Bites and... From the day I bought it, it always scratched right to the start as the singing. And to this day, I hear it. And even though it's a live version, not the album version, I expect it to go, Billy, Billy, Billy. But it doesn't. Um, so you're right. I've heard Joe say that it's something that was happening around the time in terms of bands taking the previous title. And the obvious example is on Highway to Hell, ACDC, obviously, um, produced by Mutt Lang. The album before that is their live album, If You Want Blood, You've Got It. And that song is on Highway to Hell. So that's, that's the only thing I've heard as well about it might have been a thing at that time. Are you a big fan of On Through the Night, Andy? I'm
1: going to totally disagree with you too. I love this song. I, yeah. I really think that this is one of the better songs on the album. I think it's it's in a perfect place where it ups the energy of the album as, as well. And I think you can see why, or I could see why, It was also the show opener on this tour. I just think it's energetic. Going back to Lady Strange, this has got that galloping bass and guitars for the intro and under the verses. I love that. I love the lyrics. I love how Joe sings them. I've no idea what they're about. I think it's maybe about life on the road, maybe, I think. There's maybe even some subtle digs at the British press in the second verse. That's, That's what I think in my mind. But when we talk about song structures for this, I think... Even though a lot of these songs are quite short, I mean, this is only what five minutes. I think there are bits within the songs that make them feel a bit more epic, you know. And this is the, the little bits that Steve does—the little breakdown before the the third verse. I think it just it just gives it more of an epic feel. And and I love the the third verse. You're going to tell me the word for this, but Joe does that opposite to where he say, "Your wheels are turning, you're out of gas. You pay by a check, they take cash." It's the opposite. What's the word for that? I know you know it's
0: Oh, it can either be a juxtaposition, it could be an oxymoron, anything like
1: yeah, that. Like, anything like that. Like that. I just, I just love that lyrical composition of this. And I'm disappointed that they've only played it at Vegas in 2013. and They've not done it anywhere else since the Hydra So I would love to see this song live. I really great this one.
0: Do you know what I'm going to do, Andy? I believe in you, right? And if you're <laughs> saying this, I think yeah. you know what you've probably got a point. So, in the way that. I, my love of high and dry has grown over the years. I'm going to go and focus on this song and give it a good few back to back listens. I'm going to listen out for some of those things that you just said, and I'll come back to you and let you know if it if it if it blossoms. Because um, I don't know if you if you're saying it, I'm thinking might have a point. I don't want to give you too much respect, but you know, I'm thinking might have a point. So I'm going to go. Barry, you're going to go and listen to it as well on the back of um, Andy's enthusiastic waving of the flag for on through the night.
2: Uh, go on then. I must say, this is actually what I really like about these podcasts is when, when you do hear someone say how much they love a song that you maybe not thought that much of, it's like, oh, well, maybe we'll give it a second chance. I had that a lot with the slang podcast you guys were doing. But um, find me find me a copy which doesn't skip halfway through the solo and I'll, I'll give it a few goes.
1: I just think that there's some of the little things that Steve does within solos where he links sections, links solos, links to a breakdown. There's little bits on this song as well that stand out to me. And and that's another one of the reasons why I like it.
0: Track number nine, Mirror, Mirror, Look Into My Eyes. It's another song that has got a second part in brackets, like High and Dry, Saturday Night, written by Steve Clark, written by Joe Elliott. Another quite long one and... Uninterestingly, exactly the same length of time as on through the night, five minutes and six seconds. Unless I've just accidentally written that down wrong and I just, yeah. I was looking at the wrong song, but let's just pretend they're exactly the same length. <laughs> Andy, played this a few times, haven't he They played this at the Vegas residency in 2013, the Viva Hysteria, when they were doing the Dead Flapper. Is this a song you'd like to see them play live?
1: I've seen them play live, luckily. They did bring it back in America in 2007 and on the Sparkle Lounge tour. And I got to see it, actually, at the Sparkle Lounge album launch party in London, which was at a little club called the Academy in Islington. And for the encore they pulled out Mirror Mirror and wasted. So that's probably one of the biggest highlights of the lecture show that I've ever been to. I think because there was only a couple of hundred people in there, so it was a, it was a surprise. But but the first word I've written down for this song is gold. You know this this is yeah, an yeah. absolute gem, an absolute yeah. gem, and it reminds me of something like like Fooling. You know, Steve composition, melodic, moody, atmospheric, and he was so good at just weaving. You know these these maladies and building something slow and brooding with these musical ideas, and again, getting back to solos, he doesn't go over the top. It just fits the song, absolutely perfectly. It's not too flashy, and uh, yeah, easily easily one of the best songs they've ever written, and like nothing else. I don't think maybe fooling a little bit, but there's very few songs like this, and it just shows the the quality of Steve Clark. I think.
0: This is why I've given on Food and Night another go, based on your recommendation because this passed me by a little bit over the years, and it's one I've really, really badly, badly got into over the last few years, and it's it's what, it's what one of my favourite songs on there as well. Ben, Andy touched on the guitars there. What's your assessment of the guitar playing in this and the guitar part in this song?
2: Uh, the guitars alone, yeah, gold, masterpiece. I agree with everything Andy said about, about Mirror Um I like to imagine what this would be like with a pyromania style production and setting, because I think it has the trademarks of, like you say, like, like Philly and like Die Hard the Hunter, like these little musical sections, like Billy's got a gun coming under fire. It fits that atmospheric kind of sonic quality perfectly. It's amazing. It's, it's just, it's a great example of what Steve could do. And again, it really sets them apart on this album you know, for what we've seen and for what maybe other people say about it being quite an ACDC sounding album, they, they wouldn't write something like this. And yeah, I I love it. I can't speak highly enough of this song. I'm always a, a fan of songs that have what I call the bass thump. That's when the bass is just in those single notes on the kick and the snare, like in this song in the verse, like in Too Late for Love. I adore that so much. I cannot explain it enough. But what what this also makes me think of, I mean, guitar-wise, it's amazing, like I said. Intricate chords, great little pieces of music. The solo section, I mean, when Steve would do it live, he'd make it into a more kind of chordy thing instead of the harmony guitars, which is what you do with Don't Shoot Shotgun as well, more kind of orchestrated. Um, But what I like to think about is, you know, people say about, oh, this is... If only Death Leopard stayed in that, the sound of the first two albums is that. Yeah, they could they could make songs like this with this kind of sonic quality, but I think Steve's writing, especially, deserved more deserved more kind of attention on it. And that's what we saw with with Pyromania and Hysteria. I mean, the song is still great. I just think, man, what, what that, that could have been that could have been another proper epic if it was on, let's say, Pyromania or Hysteria. and. I have another little factoid from the infamous tab book here. One that I quite like because I've, you know, I've made a couple of videos talking about the band using the string by string recording method, and apparently, oh, they only did it on the Asteria pre course and all that. I quote from Steve, this is one we still do live and everybody likes it. There's a section in here when we first recorded separate strings to make chords, which I believe is the chorus. So it even shows again. This early on in their career, they're trying these cool recording techniques to make things work. And I do think the backing vocals on this song and the chorus are only beaten by Bringing On The Heartbreak. I think they sound fantastic with a good pair of headphones or a good pair of monitors. Top, top song. Highlight for me.
0: That is a revelation about the string by string because I always thought that the first time they did that was in Billy's Got A Gun uh, because I know they definitely did it in that to to give it more... um, Give it more bottom end. Apparently, I was going to come back to one thing you just said, then Ben. I noticed you said the solo section, and that leads into something I was gonna I was gonna ask you: Is the solo in this song a solo, or or is it something else? Because it's certainly not a like a wailing solo. It it, it just feels different to like I don't know, like the solo from say, Stage Fright or you know Let It Go or whatever.
2: It doesn't sound like that type of solo. Is it a solo? Good point, Neil. Yeah, it's, it's. I guess it's not technically a solo. You'd maybe more refer to this as like an instrumental break. It's. It's. Yeah. It's incredible. Incredible use of. I'll throw out a couple of musical terms. The the first bit, like nice little use of chromaticism, where you have notes right next to each other, and then like say, the kind of harmony bit, and um, where you have two guitars kind of harmonizing, they're creating weird little chords in there. It's. I mean, Steve was how old at the time? Twenty. 21, maybe? 21. If, if that yeah. 19, you know, it, it's absolutely incredible to think. And I think that's where maybe classical training shines through a bit more on this song than the others. But um, I love it. I can't speak highly enough of this song.
0: What was that word that you just said? Crow? Chromaticism. Do you reckon that's where Lady Gaga got her Chromatica album title from? Is it something to do with that? Is it something to do with she's a secret Steve Clark fan, do you think?
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> almost certainly okay i'm glad that you never said no 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 but if you had that would have took us <laughs> the last song sorry i'm just amusing myself by uh, <laughs> by segues I'm, I'm just making up but you know you've got to do something to entertain the listeners so the last song is no 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 minutes five seconds long just written down in front of me joe elliott pete willis and rick savage andy we talked earlier on about raw sound and songs this is a pretty raw sound and song isn't it
1: (laughs) in my head i thought to myself christ how, how could joe sustain that in a career singing like that the song's a million miles an hour he's screaming this at the top of his lungs and this is just another perfect example of comparing on through the night to high and dry, it's a quantum leap. What pushed to get out of him. It's taken him beyond his natural singing voice. I mean, there's no way that he could sustain, sustain this for a career. So it's no wonder he was he was he was he was saying that come hysteria and adrenalise that he wanted to tone it down a bit and not be screaming all over the place. But but this song, I think this is the rock soft of the album. This is this is appealing to the the sort of heavy metal crowd and i think i think it's a good end i think it's a good end to the album uh they didn't play it very often live a couple of times it got played on the uk tour for iron drive so not many people would have seen it <laughs> but uh, i think i think it's a, a strong end I, I like it it's something different to the rest of the album it's a, it's a bit manic it's it's a bit heavy metal
0: has anyone ever heard on some version of the record or something, the the no 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 the end, but I think it just goes on and on. I think it plays forty six times. I know on my CD and on that, it definitely doesn't go for forty six times. It it goes for a long time, and it's not something that you want to hear when you've got a headache. What do you
2: think of this song, Ben? It's it's funny you mentioned that end bit because I was going to ask you guys because I used to find it was somewhat. I don't know, the way it was recorded, it was somewhat comforting just hearing those nose kind of fade out very gradually. I kind of liked how they, how they felt in my head on a pair of like, you know, old iPod earbuds. And so I was wondering what it was like with the one where it just completes, sorry, it repeats indefinitely. But apart from that, the song for me, yeah, it's a, like Andy was saying, it's a typical kind of heavy metal rocker. It doesn't really resonate as much with me. But I think for the time, for how old the guys were and the type of songs they were doing, I think it's great. It finishes the album nicely and it's great for kind of adolescents listening. But there's, there's not much else for me to take away from it. I mean, the I think the word Andy used there was manic. That's why I described the Pete Willis solo as. It's kind of all over the place. But it's cool. It's got, it's got a cool vibe about it. It's got the energy. But between this and On Through the Night, they're my, probably the, the weak links of the album. But they're still, they're still cool. There's... I, Still enjoy listening to them, still enjoy some, somewhat trying to play along with them. Yeah, cool track
0: to end it. Right, then. so we've ended side two. So we've got to pick a song from side two to go on to the Def Leppard Ultimate Def Leppard playlist. And This is a really interesting one because, I mean, we've discussed it. I think there's, there's certainly three underrated songs on there that we and I think a lot of people like. You got me running, Lady Strange, on through the night, Mirror Mirror, and no, no, no. We started with Andy last time, so Ben, I'm going to start with you. Can you give me your first choice, but can you also give me a contingency second choice in case we have to enter
2: a period of negotiation, please? That's fine, because there's two that stick out to me anyway. I mean, as strong as side one is, this is harder for me because... My my favorite song that I think I could listen to more so than not, or more often than not, sorry, is is Lady Strange. But Mirror Mirror, I think, is the song that has that has more of a quote unquote Death Leopard feel about it. It's 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 like the other epics that we see throughout the years in Pyromania and Hysteria and and, and onwards. Mirror Mirror is my first choice. Contingency would be Lady Strange, and um, but it's it's really tough for me to kind of. The kind of pick between the two. Mirror Mirror edges it, though. I think it's got more musical quality about it and more of a Def Leppard. If I want to introduce some of to Def Leppard and tell them what they're about, guitars, vocals, cool recording techniques, Mirror Mirror all the way for side, for side two with Lady Strange just behind.
0: Okay, so we'll cross over to the esteemed Mr Gibbons. What is your first choice? If we need it, what's your second choice? But we'll just go first choice first.
1: I don't, think, I don't think we'll need a second choice Mirror Mirror Hands Down It's by far the best track on Side 2 As much as Black On Through the Night Mirror Mirror By far is the best track On Side 2 And is even pushing Bringing on the Heartbreak the best track on the entire album Yeah Easily Mirror Mirror No question
0: That's good Mirror Mirror That will be the song um, I agree with that as well Can I just clarify that Are you both saying that Mirror Mirror Is your favourite
2: song On the whole album <sighs> That's tough. That's if I was to think analytically, logically, mirror, mirror, yes. But Lady Strange has a weird thing with me. I just I really love that song, Um, but purely on the the masterpiece guitar work of Steve Clark, shows more mirror, mirror. And I think it's one of those ones where it's like it's just a cool song. Like like Andy was saying, it's not like anything else. It can sit on its own quite comfortably and hold its own. And yeah, if if someone said pick a song, is that your favorite from the album? Yeah, I'd, I'd no shame in saying Mirror Mirror would be my favorite, for sure.
1: Yeah, I think this was the sort of beginning of of an album where, at any given time, I could pick a different song out as being my favorite. Let it go, hit and run, uh, bringing on heartbreak. You can switch on yeah. its own on through the night. Mirror Mirror. So right now, Mirror Mirror. Yeah.
0: So if anyone's listening to this, you know that. Familiar with High and Dry, then we picked out a song there for you, which might be one of the ones that you do miss, you know, because it's getting towards the the back end of the album. It's the penultimate song. Make sure you definitely, definitely go and check it out. And if you do know the album, come and listen to it again. See if you think the lads are right. Okay, so we've come to the end of all of the songs. We'll finish off by just any remaining or overriding (coughs) thoughts on the album, so Andy, I'll come to you first. Closing thoughts on High and Dry.
1: I think I open by saying that High and Dry, I think, stands on its own as, as a unique album in the catalog because up until that point, they didn't really have much of an identity. And I think that when you look back at that period of time in 1980, the band were literally they were literally on their arse in England. You know, the Sounds article had knocked them back. The popularity was a at, at, at real low. And I think if you look at 1981, there's a lot of new wave of British heavy metal artists that released albums. Most of them are forgotten about. And probably the two that would stand out to all the three, if you count High and Dry, would be uh, Saxon, Denim and Leather, Iron Maiden, Killers. And I think those two, Saxon and Maiden, they were just consolidating their success in England. But I think Def Leppard and the management had aspirations that were looking further afield. They are looking at building the success in America or international. And it's a massive statement of intent for them to put the faith in somebody like Mutt Lang to come and produce Def Leppard, who had already had international success with ACDC. So I think Def Leppard were way ahead of the curve of any of those other British bands in terms of gaining success in America. And in typical sort of British press fashion, they didn't like that at all. And I think that's one of the reasons why they ended up, uh, up knocking, knocking them down a peg or two. The career, when you look at Def Leppard's 80s career, it's full of what-ifs and decisions and, and and choices that were made. So you think the faith in the managers to put Mutt Lang as the producer of the albums when when they were the, the most popular. Mutt pulling a performance like that out of Joe sort of revolutionised the sound, just the energy that that added and the confidence that it gave Joe. And also one of the interesting things that I read a what if, is that supposedly photograph came from the high and dry sessions. Now, you imagine that if Muttland was delayed about, by about six months, I think, so everything seemed to be a bit more condensed. You imagine if they'd had time to finish photograph and that was part of high and dry. What would have happened after that? Where would they have gone? But as it ended up happening, things fell into place with MTV picking up heartbreak further on down the line. And I think that's what paved the way for Pyromania and the, and the sound and the popularity of that. But I think, you know, we have spoke a lot about the solos on on High and Dry. And I think the one tiny little piece that probably could be missing from some of those singles is that bit of fire that like Phil Collin added into the singles of, of Pyromania a little bit further down the line. But this, this is the band with one foot still in, uh, the new wave of British heavy metal. And the other foot, they're just edging slightly into the more commercial territory with Mutlang's Lang's help. And the rest is history from that because what he moulded them into was a totally different beast from 1980. And the High and Dry is the stepping stone into that.
0: That's interesting as well because they go into the recording of this album on a real downer. So because they, they're waiting for Mutlang, and Mutlang is working on the Foreigner four album i believe so they have to wait six months for him so it's during that time that's where you get the famous story of um, joe and ends up working you know on a building site like laboring during that winter and they're and joe's also getting fed up so he's the one who decides that they're gonna play like a little club tour during the winter steve clark doesn't want to do it it's a complete disaster and it's it, these places as a as a Def Leppard fan, like you know, like so, like the Refford Porter House, where apparently you know earlier in that same year they had you know they'd be turning people away at the door, and then after the whole Sounds article and everything, they go there again, and there's like forty people there, and he play all these like really little clubs, almost to prove a point that they haven't sold. I was so, like, no one turns up, and it's completely bleak, and it's horrible. And even when you look like they do in the writing sessions, they do the writing sessions and the rehearsal in rick allen's mum's boss's paper like warehouse she works like for like a paper company and it's like a warehouse and they get to use that for free on the caveat that they play two shows at some place called the gemini aquarius um, or something so it's mad that you got this album that today now is considered a classic album but they go into it on such a low it's untrue but then obviously you know, things pick up and even though it doesn't set the world alight in 1981. And you talked about the managers, so you got Peter Mention, you got Cliff Bernstein or Bernstein. Apparently when he first heard High and Dry, he was gutted, and he actually is quoted as saying he, he found it really upsetting because he loved On Through the Night so much and he personally was gutted that they'd sort of like polished it off. So it's interesting, even with the, within their own management, early, early sort of, Reactions to it weren't quite as positive as you think, and it's for this reason why I asked about at the beginning what your thoughts and how they've changed on this album through the years. Because I think it is an album that is, you know, been revisited and rejudged and was think thought of differently at the time. But Ben, any closing
2: thoughts for you on High and Dry? Yeah, just to echo what Andy's saying, it's funny mentioning the whole what ifs because I think that's that seems to be a constant throughout the Death Library career. And this is certainly, yeah, another one of them. Um, it's an interesting time, and it's funny hearing, hearing Andy put it into context like that, and yourself, Neil, about what was going on at the time, and it just really elevates the, the appreciation of the album. For me, when I think about it, it it's odd, because there's a there's a kind of catch-22 about it. For those people who who are more into the new wave of British heavy metal, they probably thought, well, this just shows what Death could have been. They could have been another... New Wave, a British heavy metal band doing songs like this. Imagine if they kept that sound. Imagine if they kept going. Imagine if they didn't go so far pop. On another hand, you listen to some of the songs on here and you can't help but think, oh, imagine if they saved that for Pyromania. I mean, yeah. like you're saying with Photograph, maybe, thank God, it ended up on Pyromania, not high and dry. Maybe we would have lost out on what was such a signature song from them on Pyromania. It is a really interesting time. And like you say, it's not documented that much. I mean, I was scaring the internet on, on some sources, you know, a few Mike Shipley posts, but apparently he was fainting in the mixing stage of High and Dry, so he doesn't remember that much about it. But it really was, I guess, a, a learning experience for the band. Starting to work with Mutt Lang, learning about how he works, and it really propelled them on to do what they did with Pyromania and then do what they did with Hysteria. Hysteria is... High, sorry, high and dry is a really, really important moment for the band, especially where they are. And it's it's a great album to go back on and think I want something a bit heavier but I still want that Death Leopard sound. It's great for that. But like you say, it just opens up a lot of what-ifs. I think it's an incredible album. Like you said before, cohesive. That can go both ways, good and bad. But I still do like putting it on. I still do like trying to play along. And yeah, it's a it's, it's a really important time for the band and it shows eventually what they, they went to on, on to become. That's a band with just great songs, a band that put democracy first, that just wanted the music to be the most important thing. And you start seeing that in glimpses on here and you start seeing that little relationship coming through with Mutt and how he helps them kind of make the songs that little bit better, that little bit more appealing. But not compromising great album it's still got a really special place in, the, in my heart and uh yeah if people don't don't know this album as well check it out it might not be what you're familiar with but man it's some great songs on there great great music great music
1: it's got me revved up to listen to it again we're getting emotional yeah one other one other thing about the what if side of things is that we spoke about the album being condensed in such a short period of time. So from July to Christmas of 1981, the album's out, the tour's done. They've had a rubbish UK tour they've been supporting in America and um, in Europe. And they think it's done. And then who could have predicted that come 1982, that Bringing On The Heartbreak has uh, got loads of play on MTV and it's raised the profile. And it's, it's another one of a, a catalogue of, of things that fall into place for them that end up leading to bigger things and just building the success
0: again. Yeah, definitely, For because sure, I think yeah. that they're disappointed with it at 1st Andy. Because its Because, I mean, it sells 300,000 copies in 1981, but I think the fact it's only 100,000 more than On Through the Night, and they were expecting more. But then, yeah, when Photograph comes out and on the back of that alone, and, you know, with Bringing on a Heartbreak being played on, mtv i think it then sells like quite quickly about another two hundred thousand. or certainly in the states it does anyway so yeah you've summarized it both beautifully there an important album an incredible album i fully agree andy ben thank you very very much for coming on to death left pod again and hope to see you soon
2: thank you yes, thank you very much